Hi, I'm Alexi Mostris of Sweet Bobby, and I'm this week's guest on Metapod. You're listening to Metapod, where we unpack the web's most interesting podcasts and the stories behind them. Hosted by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May. everyone i'm wendy morrill of metapod and guess what i'm also with metapod and my name is kevin may welcome listeners to another episode where we unpack the world's best podcasts and the stories behind them and have we got some unpacking to do today mr may glance across a number of podcast recommendations for 2022 and you'll likely find our most recent guest danny robbins with his spooky uncanny as well as another podcast called sweet bobby that's right we're very fortunate to have the host of another highly tipped podcast of the year joining us this week that's alexi mostras who works for tortoise media and uncovered the strange and unsettling tale that is sweet bobby okay similar to untold the daniel morgan murder hosted by peter jukes who we interviewed a few months back, Sweet Bobby needs a little bit of explaining before we dive into the interview. At its most basic level, Sweet Bobby is the story of the victim of a catfishing scam. Catfishing, for those that didn't hear us explaining our farewell in the last episode, is a deceptive activity where a person creates a fictional persona or fake identity on a social networking service usually targeting a specific victim, close quotes. However, over the seven episodes of Sweet Bobby, you'll learn this is no straightforward tale. The victim, a young, successful radio presenter called Kirat, meets cardiologist Bobby on Facebook. They get to know each other via instant messaging, and friendship starts to grow. Over the course of several years, their connection and communications become more intense, eventually becoming a romantic relationship. Yeah. Kirat didn't realize it for a long time, but the entire relationship is full of lies and manipulation, with Bobby, in inverted commas, sometimes claiming he's in a hospital in New York City, or has lost his voice, or many other strange reasons why they cannot meet in person. Eventually, Kirat discovers that not only is Bobby deceiving her, the deception is of nearly unimaginable proportions. Bobby is actually Kirat's cousin, Simran. And to be clear, Simran is a successful businesswoman in London, not a male cardiologist. And thus begins another chapter in the story, with problems emerging in their family and wider community, and a reluctance by the police to investigate. Equally complicated are a number of legal roadblocks that Kirat as victim, and Alexi as an investigative journalist, must navigate. You'll hear us reference Brighton, where the real Bobby lived. Yes, that's right, there is a real Bobby in all this. And the Metropolitan Police in London. That's the same investigating force at the centre of the untold story. So, I think we've covered all the main elements of Sweet Bobby. Alexi has done a tremendous job in both investigating a really complicated story and persuading Kirat and others to talk about it so openly. It's worth noting that the cousin Simran did not agree to participate in the Sweet Bobby podcast, yet anyway, and has only issued statements via her lawyers to date. Okay, thank you, Wendy. Okay, let's hear from Alexi and start the tape. Alexi, 
Lexi Mostras, welcome to Metapod. Hi. Hi. Thanks for joining me and Kev to talk about Sweet Bobby. It's good to be here. You're a journalist with training in law, as far as I understand, and you're currently a partner with the startup company Tortoise Media, which is doing yeah. some interesting audio journalism, and maybe we can touch on that in a moment. But first, at the beginning of the Sweet Bobby podcast, you say, this starts as a love story, but ends up as something much darker. Mm. In your opinion, Alexi, what is the darkest aspect of this story? I think the darkest aspect is that this kind of goes beyond a catfishing story and into a relationship that was probably so controlling and coercive that it was at least arguably illegal. So um, the central character was tricked uh, into a relationship, something that started off as a friendship and then morphed into a relationship years down the line. Uh, but it wasn't a happy relationship. It was a, re a relationship that sort of ate up her whole life. And I think for me, the darkest thing was that it was 10 years of this this woman's life that was eaten up by the scam. And, and for quite a lot of that, it was a destructive relationship that she was in. And, and once you're through that, you can't go back and get the time back. And she started off at 29 when, when the scam first started. And she ended up, when it finished, you know, well into her 30s. And those, those years, she will never get back. So you are a partner in Tortoise Media, which I mentioned already. And that's a fairly new news outlet, if I'm correct. Um, and I sure. It sounds like you have a commitment to the examination of power and transparency and slow news. I think power is at the core of some stories that you've covered in your earlier career as well. Now, this is a two-part question, which I think probably has one answer. Is there anything unique about power dynamics of catfishing for those who are not aware? And what's the most unusual thing about this particular case of Sweet Bobby in terms of power dynamics? It's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think we do think a lot about power and about power imbalances uh, at Tortoise, both kind of on a structural level, but also kind of on an individual level. Uh, and I, I think there's something really interesting about how power works online and in online relationship, because people just have so much more information at their fingertips with which they can use if they wish to manipulate you. So I suppose if you're sitting there opposite a stranger having a chat in a bar, you know, it's kind of on an equal level. You don't have access to each other's biographies. You don't have access to anything, uh, any other data apart from yourselves. But if someone sets out to manipulate you online, then they kind of have the tools to construct a whole story and a whole narrative around them first before they approach you and, and during the contact with you. So I think that the internet allows someone who wishes to manipulate someone else, it gives them a lot more scope and a lot more tools to, to do that. And I think that is quite relevant to a question about power and power dynamics, yeah. You offer some spoilers, I suppose you could call them in the podcast, though I think that's maybe a bit of an extreme word for them. And I think the story could easily have been told as a thriller. How did you decide how to tell this story and present this type of subject matter? It was uh, a, a challenge for us narratively, um, because we, we didn't know how much to reveal and how much to hold back. And I guess that's something that, you know, many, many investigative podcasts and, and just general thriller, thriller writing have, have in common. We actually did a version of the first episode without revealing any of the catfish 
stuff without revealing it was a scam. And that episode effectively was about a young woman who had everything uh, to, to, to play for in her life, meeting someone kind of strange online, becoming friends with them. And um, we listened to it and it was quite boring. You know, it didn't sustain much interest. And it was weird because we thought it was good because we had the whole story in our heads. But someone listening to it from the outside yeah. was just like, well, am I going to really listen to episode two if all episode one was, you know, a story of a kind of relatively normal relationship? And so we, we had to sort of work out a way of injecting tension into the first episode right from the outset. And we just thought, well, why not? You know, we're not going to reveal who it is, but why not reveal that it is a scam. And then from that moment on, everything that happens that would otherwise be kind of incongruous is cast in a sort of darker light. And I think that was, it turned out, I think that was the right decision. I think the music works well uh, too. It adds a, a bit of drama, but with a sort of warped sensibility, if I'm allowed to say that. I love I loved the music. And I've got to give a shout out to our sound designer, Carla Patella. Um, who uh, works in Florence. So like we never saw each other face to face. It was a very kind of online relationship. But she did she did an amazing, amazing piece of work, I think. Uh, Alexi, hi. Um, can, you, hey. can you get a sense of what was Kirat's motivation for going public with this? Was it to just tell her story and it almost be a kind of a cathartic moment because she was trying to move on? Or was it to raise awareness of the concept of catfishing and warn others? Uh, I think I think it was. She always had in her mind that she 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 had some wider objectives apart from just telling her story. I I, I remember sort of talking to her. We went down to Brighton to do some interviews down there. We were sitting by the beach, and I I said to her, "Look, we should think about you know what you actually want to get out of this." Mm. Uh, expecting her to say, "Oh, you know, I, maybe this, maybe that." She was like, "Yeah, I got four things." <laughs> and so, you know, she really thought about it. She, she was like, I want there to be more more visibility around police training in these issues. I want my community to face up to how it deals with some of these issues in, in certain ways. I want more um, accountability on social media platforms. Uh, and I want to tell my own story. And, it, you know, so from, from the outset, I think that she was thinking more widely than just, you know, I want I want to tell a story. You mentioned community there, Alexi, and I think one of the, I wouldn't say it's disturbing, but kind of really interesting elements of it is when the father gets involved and they have mm. the meeting and it's the first time you hear her really kind of lose her temper. It's perhaps the right way of putting it. Sure. What was your kind of perception of the way that was unravelling and the way the father was almost trying to not protect cousin, but also just was he trying to keep the cohesion of the family, the, the extended family together, or was he worried about how it might affect the wider family and the community that they were in? I think so. I think it was, you know, I felt a little bit anxious about not going too deep into the relationship between Kirat and her father because you know, I just didn't have enough time to kind of delve into that. And it wasn't really my place to do so. Mm -hmm. Plus, Kirat loves her father. You know, it's not like they're estranged or anything. They they do have, it seems, at, at the heart, a good, a close relationship. But I think that what I wanted to do was to do what Kirat had suggested, which is that the father's reaction was in some ways symbolic of the wider community's reaction. Mm. Um, and, you know, that is tied up with a lot of kind of deep issues of shame and propriety and wanting to kind of deal with problems behind closed doors, 
and not wanting to kind of air your dirty laundry, which is a phrase I heard uh, quite a lot in, in this context. And I think lots of communities have similar, you know, similar feelings and similar, uh, similar tensions. But I wanted to use the father as a kind of way of kind of bringing in the wider issue of the community because it was a really difficult subject for me as someone who isn't a member of that community to deal with but i knew i had to deal with it because kira was telling me that it was important just another bit on the community piece here is i think what happens around the formal apology between the victim and and the perpetrator which sounds like a fairly complicated negotiation, which is on the one hand working within these sort of unspoken guidelines of engagement of the community, I I think, while it's also a legal process. I mean, what do those community dynamics have in terms of an impact of a for legal resolution for Kirat. I mean, would it be fair to say that her compromise is considered necessary by the community to keep the peace or save face for that for the perpetrator and that's that's somehow that balances mm. out and is okay i mean is that a correct understanding of the situation i think you can see that the community is kind of important and at the same time you don't want to take it too far because kira is quite independent she was in her negotiations with the lawyer and her interactions with the lawyer and that whole side of things, she was driving the situation forward. I don't think she was probably worried too much about the whole community aspect from that side of things. I think she wanted a public apology because that was what she felt was was fair. On Simran's side, on the perpetrator's side, you know, was she apologizing to Kirat because of community pressure? Maybe, yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely a sensible hypothesis, yeah. Let me, let me ask you, let's take a kind of step back a second and look at the case in its entirety. And I'm, uh, I'm not asking you to speak for other people, but I want to get your sense again, if we can, Alexi. What do you think her end game was, Simran? Was it to just... Simran, take it. Right. Yes. Was it just to keep it going? Because the, long, the length of time is extraordinary that this this catfishing took place. If I missed something from listening, I apologise, but I don't think there was any kind of financial motive at all. Not much, so, no, no. Yeah, so what was? What do you think was the end game, if there was I mean, one? I, you know, it's a good question. I, I mean, she had plenty of chances to stop what she was doing, and yeah. um, it must have taken up a lot of effort on her part as well, but there was no indication that she wanted to, to stop. I'm thinking that it probably became such a big part of her life an important part of her life that she felt like she would feel bereft if she stopped. And in fact, she only did stop after Kira went to Brighton to confront the real Bobby and the whole thing escalated and she ended up in a police station, as in Simran and Kira both ended up in a police station to report the incident. And I think at that stage, when Simran was faced with effectively like, you know, having to allegedly lie to the police that things got so serious that she felt like she at that point she had to stop it but i don't think that there were any signs previously that she tried to or attempted to stop what she was doing yeah it's 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 extraordinary and by virtue of this being one of the many podcasts that's on these lists this year lots of people are listening to that and i've spoken to a few friends and saying oh, we're, we're speaking to alexi and one of the questions that a friend sure. of mine said to ask you if this is okay he said you know at what point when you were going through the story and interviewing kirat did you move from being with regards to kirat mm. you know perhaps you're a little bit gullible mm. to it flipping the other way and 
completely understanding how she was kind of drawn in and um, maybe hoodwinks the wrong word but do you know what I mean it's yeah there's there's a fine yeah. line between it and did you did you also think hang on a second how did you there was absolutely that transition on on my part as well I did start off thinking you know how is this going to work why didn't you ever ask for a video call you know how in practice like shouldn't you have asked more questions surely there were red flags all of that stuff and it made me worried because I thought you know, how how is this woman going to be sympathetic to an audience? How is there going to be any relatability to it at all? Yeah. But, you know, the more you learn about the scam, the, the more that, that position kind of flips on its head. So for one thing, it was such a slow burn scam. This wasn't something that, you know, led to Kirat being kind of love bombed in the first like week or month of the Mm. Uh, of, of the catfish this you know she she didn't even enter into an intimate relationship with bobby until sort of five years down the line so that's one thing the second thing is that you know people think about this as entirely an online scam but kirat was being told that bobby was real by someone that she trusted in real life someone that had said you know she'd yeah. been to new york on a business trip to see bobby in hospital giving him flowers from her all of that stuff right so like Unless you think that Kirat should have mistrusted that some per- that person who was close to her, who I think you know most people know now is Simran Bogle, her, her cousin. Unless she had decided to mistrust Simran, then the whole thing has kind of becomes valid because it's yeah. been validated by a real person. And then the other thing was that I sort of the flipped me on the head a little bit was the sophistication of the scam itself, and that plenty of examples of like how kind of nuts this was the baby photo example i don't know if you remember that from the yeah. podcast but the fact that bobby asked kirat to help him pick out some baby clothes for his young son they go on a website like mother care or something like that pick out some clothes and then two weeks later kirat gets a picture of bobby's son wearing the clothes that they've picked out so he has to be real right but then it transpired that the catfisher had, had, had got hold of some photos of bobby's son worked out reverse engineered where the clothes had come from, Googling or something like that, and then used that as a way of tricking Kirat into thinking that she had chosen the clothes that had then ended up on the real on the real sun. And that sort of sophistication, you know, that is going <laughs> to fool yeah. a lot of people. Um, yeah. So look, I, I don't know if I'm at the position purely personally of thinking something like this could literally happen to anyone. I don't. I think some people are just naturally more cynical and would have asked more questions, but it could have happened to a lot more people, you might think. I think that that's the position that I ended up in. Yeah. Just while we're on the subject of methodology, one thing, and I, I think it was referenced very briefly in one of the later episodes, Alexi, but it's the, how did Simran have voice conversations with her? Mm. Because they were, it wasn't just text all the time. So how did she do that? Do you know how she did that? Did they use some kind of like vocoder through Skype or something? Do you know what I mean? To kind of disguise what would be her cousin's voice? I mean, we don't know is the short answer. She may mm. well have used some voice disguising equipment. She did. We know that she did do things like play hospital noises in the background of the conversations, and airport noises and stuff. So, like, if she did that, then she might have also disguised her voice. But again, I mean, she didn't. Bobby didn't speak to Kira until quite a long way into their relationship, and then there was because he had all these problems and all these operations. One of the operations led to his vocal cords being damaged. And so the initial kind of conversation with Kirats was basically like tapping on the phone or like doing little like whispers. And, then, and when, when you set that up, then if the voice ends up being weird, like further down the line, you don't maybe you don't question it as much. But it is a good I mean, it's a question. Everyone the voice thing is, a, is something that 
people can't yeah. get their head around. I, I'm referring to f- people in, in their roles here as victim and perpetrator, but of course they do have real names. Um, the victim in this story states that the perpetrator should be held responsible for what they did. However, I am left confused about what the victim's responsibilities were and what is someone's responsibility in developing online relationships. Do they have responsibilities to investigate or be critical about those relationships? Well, you know, I mean, I think it depends on a case-by-case basis. Uh, You know, if someone, you can imagine a hypothetical example where, you know, someone's online and they get a random message from Prince, you know, so-and-so of Nigeria saying, we need £50,000 and then we'll be able to release a trust fund of £3 million to you. And you pay them £50,000 without really checking them out. You know, I think that maybe you do need to take some responsibility for that online interaction. Like that's an extreme example. But I'm trying to kind of suggest potentially that Kirat did not do anything along the way that was really dumb or that stood out as like specifically, specially gullible. She did, she interacted in a way that, at each step was understandable, at least to me. And so I think that she doesn't really hold or bear any responsibility for what happened. It's not to say that it would happen to anyone, like some other people would have asked maybe more questions, but I don't see her as needing to feel responsible for what happened, even partly. On the flip side of that, there's a a moment where I think you sort of share this revelation about how much time this took in the perpetrator's life. Yeah. And I almost sense this like, oh, are we going to go down this path where there's some building of sympathy for this character? Have listeners expressed any sympathy of any sort for for the perpetrator in this case? No. And that, that, to be honest with you, that worries me. Because um, I think that had we been able to speak to her or, or found out a little bit more about why she did it, that she might have emerged as a more sympathetic character. But no, the vast majority of comments on Twitter and on other social media like Instagram, most of them are supportive of Kira, and some of them are very critical of, uh, of Simran. And I almost think, well, yeah, but you don't really, until you know the proper background, I'm not sure you can kind of out and out condemn her. I think Kirat would disagree with that, but I always thought that was a missing part of what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I wish she'd spoken to us because I think that she she has sort of, in some people's minds, come out as a sort of two dimensional villain figure. And I'm I'm sure she's I'm just sure sure she's not. I think you refer, or the apology refers to her saying being in a dark place that she felt that they were both in a dark place. Yeah, um, is the potential motive for this and we don't know what mm. exactly that means but i mean or, or do you or does that have to do with the some the community dynamics maybe or i don't really have more details on that um okay. the apology letter was interesting because uh it really split split us down the middle of the team and like people i speak speak to about it have different opinions of this i'm slightly cynical about it i have to say because it was given to kirat on condition that she couldn't show it to anyone else and actually the apology letter that she could show to other people was a lot more ambiguous in terms of Simran accepting responsibility for what she did. So, you know, I kind of tend to be of the view that if you think that no one else is going to see something, then you can kind of write whatever you want in order to kind of move on. Other people say, oh, well, 
if she knew no one else was going to see it, perhaps this is like a forum where she can kind of convey her true feelings about what happened. And actually that makes it more true than if it was kind of for, for a wider audience. She doesn't so, seem like an ordinary character in this sense, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's that's true. That's true. I don't know. It's still a mystery. It's still a mystery. And, and the door is always open to Simran coming forward and uh, telling telling me a bit more about what happened. You mentioned when we were talking about the technology or p- potential technology that was being used and there was airport noises going on and, you know, the mm. baby pictures. How premeditated do you think the catfish was? Because it starts off in one way, as we said, right at the beginning, and it ends up in a pretty dark place and all these mm. different things in between the pretending to go to New York and all this kind of stuff or meet to Bobby in New York. But the complexity and that when it was involved in this, do you think that was all just figured out up front or did it more as if snowball as she got more wrapped up in it? I mean, this is speculation, but I, I would probably err more on the snowball side of things. I think it was, I think at each stage it was quite sophisticated, but I think that even for Simran, it would be difficult to imagine that she kind of could see where the relationship would end up in six, seven, eight years time on, mm. on day one. Right. One of the other, I know, I know we're kind of picking up different things as we go along because, you know, just sure. elements of different episodes that I keep recalling. There is the visit to the nightclub in Brighton where she bumps yeah. into the real Bobby, but doesn't yeah. really, and that, that, that whole thing is just bizarre. But afterwards, and apologies if I missed it in part of the narration, but how does the fake Bobby get around that? Because presumably mm. Kirat would have said to Bobby, oh, yeah, that was a bit mad the other night in that nightclub, us bumping into each other, and seemingly he may not have even known. I don't think at that stage they were even close enough that she would have asked him. I don't think okay. she immediately raised it with him. I think at that point they were speaking like maybe once a month or something like that, or that that sort of frequency. So I de- it's a good question. I don't have an answer to that. Um, I think, and it also coincided with the time just after that when Bobby apparently moved to Australia. I think, and then the com- communications between him and Kirat were were cut off for quite a long while and maybe one event had something to do with the other but it's a good question i don't have a specific answer i'm afraid maybe something for season two I don't know. how yeah. is the real bobby <laughs> bobby's good real the real bobby is a lovely lovely guy and um i'm so pleased that he was because you know you never know what these, you never know what what he was going to be like but the real bobby in real life and his wife just yeah just, just genuinely nice nice guys and um we had to persuade them quite hard to kind of agree to speak to us but right. um when we did like he was he, you know when you get like naturally good storytellers and you sort of just sit back and kind of let them do their thing and you don't really have to cut them down that much and i remember just leaving his, his house at the end of the first interview i think and saying to claudia who is the fellow reporter on the project i feel now like we've reached a turning point where this is going to be really good but quite interesting so you haven't discovered that he's in a real witness protection program <laughs> i think well he... <laughs> maybe that's that's the big twist maybe <laughs> maybe he is but just can't mention it <laughs> no i mean he sounds like he has amazingly a bit of a sense of humor in reflecting yeah. on the story that that does seem to come through I mean, has, yeah, yeah, totally. has I he continued to be involved with the story as it's come out with the podcast? Not really. No, he's like I think he like he 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 sent me like some messages that said he really liked how it turned out. Congratulations! I sent him one back saying, "Obviously, thank you. You know, very much. You, you kind of made it." But um, I think he just wants to get on with his life. He just wants to move on. 
Fair enough. Does he, does he consider himself to be a victim in some degree? Yeah, I think so. Because of the, the stolen identity element, but there are no charges or police investigations from his perspective that you're aware of? Not that I'm aware of, no. no. I could ask a few more general questions about, I think, online activity um, technology. And I know you've done some work on online porn. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think the idea of authenticity comes up in this case. And, you know, what do we deem authentic online? And how has that changed with the internet? What are you seeing evolving on that front, generally? Uh, you know, it's one of the sort of the great questions of, of how we all live our lives now, because we consume so much on online. You know, porn is huge. Like the, the sites that we were looking at, the main porn sites, are sort of number five and number six in terms of the most popular sites, you know, in the world. And they are part of like an ecosystem of 40 or 50 sites, we're talking like billions of billions of views a month and no one knows anything about the videos that they're looking at or the genesis of them or whether the in general whether the artists have consented or yeah and and yet the consumption takes place anyway and it's almost like we're sort of we've just given a free pass to the porn it's a bit tricky and it's a bit difficult and a bit grubby to kind of deal with i think that you know a lot of assumptions are made online about reality when you know, you don't have the kind of the proof to, to back it up. That reads across through, uh, you know, online scams, which is just kind of totally pre prevalent, phishing emails, Twitter bots. It's very, I think human beings are inherently quite trusting. And I think the internet gives a lot of scope for people who want to abuse that trust to, um, you know, put their plans into action. So what do you think would be worse, the algorithms of big tech keeping us in our info bubbles or the deception and abuse that's capable by the little people on social media? <laughs> I don't think that like one is mutually exclusive to the other. I think that like they're both pretty bad. <laughs> okay. I mean, with that in mind then, how prevalent is catfishing in various degrees of seriousness that you're aware of? So it's quite hard to tell. I mean, I think that there was this study that we cited in the podcast that suggested that uh, a huge proportion of people had been subjected to some form of catfishing or another. But, but in many cases, uh, I guess that wouldn't be that serious. It wouldn't be the sort of thing that would kind of stay with you more than a week or so. But having said that, when we did publish the podcast, I'd say... You know, 20 people, 25 people got in touch with pretty serious stories. Some, you know, I would say arguably, arguably as serious as Kira's about how they had been conned and manipulated online. So I think that there is a kind of undiscovered core of people who have been really seriously harmed by online uh, deception. And that does kind of lead me very nicely into the responsibility by big tech, to use that phrase, do they... Should they have more? What should they be doing? What, what's your perspective on their kind of role in maybe as facilitators for the communication of these catfishing attempts? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. I mean, I mean, I think that the the online the big the big platforms have a huge responsibility in general over moderation that is just kind of being you know failed in in all sorts of ways. Um, we're doing a story at the moment, or we're looking into a story at the moment, when certain videos showing illegal activity have been online, you know, on YouTube and on Facebook for years now. Yep. And clearly the platforms have more, you know, more to do in that area. In terms of catfishing, I actually think maybe the focus should be less on the social media companies and more on, on the police and the police's uh, response. But that, it's a tricky one because 
it's you know it's how to define catfishing first of all if you want action to be taken against it so let's say i go online and i have a social media profile that says i'm you know 35 rather than 42 do social media uh, companies take action against that or do they do they wait until it's a fake name or do they wait until some harm has taken place like where is the line at which you would expect a social media company to take action having said that i do think that they aren't like bobby for instance reported a whole bunch of fake accounts linked to his name and his wife's name and i don't think facebook did anything about them so you know, this was a person who was able to prove his identity to say that there are fake accounts set up in my name. And to my knowledge, I don't think Facebook did anything about that. So there is definitely more that the platforms could do. But combating catfishing as a whole, that's quite tricky because it involves you kind of separating it from standard kind of freedom of speech, you know, issues. I mean, catfishing is a crime if we want to say that that mainly victimizes women is is that fair to say uh you know that the stats on that are quite unclear actually and okay. i think that there have been some some statistics that suggest it is slightly more focused on on women as the victims uh, and men as the perpetrators but it's not by no means exceptional for a, a woman to carry out catfishing on a map. So it's not something that's maybe being held back or considered in a certain way because of who the victims generally are or who the perpetrators generally are? So, yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I think that when it comes to the police response, the primary thing that is holding back action being taken is that catfishing in, in itself is not a standalone criminal offence. And so a police officer to take action would have to sort of see evidence that other crimes have been committed. And that 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 involves kind of quite a lot of resources uh, that often police stations and police officers don't have. I mean, the, the Metropolitan Police, uh, for our UK listeners will know, is taking a bit of a kicking in many respects at the moment. So the timing of your podcast coming out was, uh, was quite interesting. But I did think her, um, the way Kirat was handled if that's the right word by the police was pretty appalling mm. they tried to recount asked her to recount a 10-year story and gave her 20 minutes or something yeah to bring us right back to the beginning when we were talking about Kirad's motivations for doing this and her i think you said the first one that she mentioned was that to increase awareness within policing that this is an issue what do you think are the chances of that actually happening I don't know, probably quite low. But, well, I don't know. I mean, I think that, again, each case has to be kind of taken on its merits. I think that for coercive control, which is a crime in England since, and has been since 2016, no one, I don't think, has ever prosecuted a coercive control case that has taken place completely online. So, in a way, the police are faced with quite a new application of an of a relatively new law and it might not be that surprising that they haven't haven't applied it in this case it doesn't mean that they should have rejected it it just is a kind of potential explanation of, of why they did and maybe after this case they might be more willing if this sets a precedent to look at online relationships and catfishing in the context of that particular piece of legislation yeah alexi what do you see unfolding in terms of power dynamics in the metaverse <laughs> Well, you know, it, it's... I mean, look, same old shit, or...? Yeah. <laughs> so, someone said to me the other day, like, if you think that it's bad what they can do to you when you're talking about a four-inch screen, like, imagine if your whole life is centred around a kind of commoditized digital universe. And, uh, you know, already there are stories about 
sexual abuse and sexual harassment taking place in the metaverse? And no one has answered, as far as I can see, any of the questions about who will regulate it and who will police it and who will decide what the laws are. I think that issue will just grow more and more important as the technology develops in order to kind of bring the metaverse to life. I mean, I think it's fair to speculate that new types of oversight and regulation will be needed, but what what do you think might be the most difficult to achieve on that front? In terms of metaverse regulation? Yeah. Just identity almost, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I think you're facing just sort of bigger, more sort of 3D issues that, that are already kind of, you know, apparent, exactly as you say, you know, identity. If someone is interacting with someone else online through at the moment they've got a photo and they've got maybe video messages and whatever but if they're able to kind of construct a whole new identity as a digital avatar and have a relationship with someone on that basis it just makes the 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 difference between a real world relationship and an online relationship even more ephemeral yeah it's interesting Um, yeah really (laughs) okay so um like you i'm a journalist and whenever we're doing a story that might, you know, we all know the laws of libel and all those kind of things, and you often get mm. sent things to the lawyers. I imagine this particular story has had a lot of uh, legal advice on the editorial side, but there was a very, very obvious and firm decision to, one, name her yeah. perpetrator, and two, to continue with the story after you'd named her. I know you put the caveat in about this is the letter or this is the message that we got from her legal representatives, but that's sure. a really interesting line to take, that you decided to go ahead, even though you couldn't get a response, with things that some might consider to be very libelous. Mm. Yeah, true. Um, well, we knew when we had started the investigation that Kirat had won a civil case against Simran, which had resulted in a a non-public but written apology. Is this the apology that that was limited to X number of people were allowed to read it? Is that the one? Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. So so we had kind of court documents in the public domain. No one had found them yet, but people could have found them with Mm -hmm. Simran Bogle's name on and the fact that she had apologized in writing. So that gave us the basis upon which to put to her Kirat's allegations. And then her lawyers came back with a response and then we published that response. If we had had no written apology, if we had had no court case, and it was just a he said, she said type of scenario, then I'm not sure we could have named her. Yeah. In fact, I'm not sure what we could have have published. Yeah, indeed. So, um, Last question, really, then, Alexian. It's about the most sure. important person in this case, and that is Kirat. I mean, how is she? There's been a deluge of publicity. There's stories in The Guardian. There's stories in other mainstream media. There's the exposure that she's now had from Sweet Bobby. Myself, like many others, have been Googling not only her, but Simran, you know, just to try and find out which financial company she used to work for, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's been a lot of exposure on this case, but how is she, given the passage of time since the podcast came out? Um I, thanks for asking. I think that's a really um, a really nice question to end on. Kira is, I think, doing really well. Like mm-hmm. she's um, really kind of getting her life back on track. I mean, it has been sort of three years since the the confession, so she has had some time to kind of rebuild. But I think the podcast has helped her tell her story uh, in a way that gives her a sense that she isn't being ignored anymore, and that that she can kind of tell her story in the way that she experienced it. 
you know, it was 10 years of her life, almost 10 years of her life. So I don't think that she will completely move on from that. But she she's doing well. Yeah, I would say she is doing well. So, of course, we all want to know if there'll be a second season of Sweet Bobby. <laughs> but if you can't tell us that, maybe you could recommend another great podcast or piece of audio journalism that Tortoise has done? Yes, absolutely. I would love to. So um, our executive producer on Sweet Bobby also is our uh, presenter of a weekly show that we do called the Slow Newscast. She's called Basha Cummings. Okay. And she presented and reported a, a three-part story called Left to Die, which you can get just simply by searching Left to Die. Uh, it's free on any podcast platform. And it is like an extraordinary story about this terrorist attack in the middle of Mozambique that focused around a hotel where there were 200 civilians inside. And, you know, that help was promised to them, but it didn't come. So they had to try and escape. Uh, and it's it's really thrilling and it's really sad. And it's kind of ties into all these issues like corruption and the role of like global mercenaries uh, and oil and energy. And, you know, it's really good. So Left to Die would be my recommendation if anyone wants to hear another example of what we do at Tortoise. Okay, great. Well, Alexi Mostris of Sweet Bobby, thank you for joining us on Metapod. Thank, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thanks, guys. So thank you to Alexi Mostris there for giving us a rundown on the Sweet Bobby story. It's a really disturbing and perplexing tale that leaves you wondering not only how someone did this, but why. Yeah, it really is. It's a terrifically well done podcast. And it deserves all the plaudits it has been receiving in the media. I guess my only comment really is that there's an equal amount of interest in Kirat as there is in Simran for me, especially around the motivation for doing the catfish and keeping it going for so long. So it would actually be intriguing to hear Simran's interpretation of the story and her behaviour someday. Indeed, it would be, I agree. Hopefully Tortoise Media will keep working on that story. So that was Sweet Bobby, and next time, after two fairly intense episodes of Metapod, we're changing gears to a more light-hearted and curious chat with Rob Harvilla, the host of 60 songs that explain the 90s. Rob has been selecting and analyzing tracks that, well, he says, say something about the 1990s, from Madonna's Hanky Panky and Wanna Be by the Spice Girls to Radiohead's Creep and Wonderwall by Oasis. His show is fast and funny, plowing through tons of 90s tunes and trivia with a little dose of nostalgia. Rob is an American treasure who appreciates popular music in a good Dairy Queen blizzard. <laughs> so mark your calendars for two weeks today and we'll return with Rob and his jukebox. Our thanks again to Alexi Mostris of Sweet Bobby. Really nice job. And now that's it from us. Thank you very much. We will, as always, see you next time. That's it for Metapod this time. Thanks for listening. Metapod will be back soon with another unpacking of the web's most interesting podcasts. But in the meantime, make sure to subscribe at any of the usual places you find your other favourite podcasts. We'd hate for you to miss upcoming episodes, and we'd love it if you left us a review. You can let us know what you think of this episode by going to metapodshow.com. We'll see you next time. Metapod is produced by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May.